This week's guest is a two-time monument winner, an Olympic silver medalist, and one of the strongest climbers in the peloton. We caught up with him during an altitude camp in Andorra. Please welcome Jakob Fulsang today on Bobby and Jens. Jakob Fulsang, welcome to Bobby and Jens. Thank you very much. Thank you. Man, it, you know, you started off, uh, at least on the road, uh, when, when I had just retired. So it's great to see you. It's great to talk to you. It's absolutely been a tick. But where, where are you right now? I assume that you'd be getting ready for the Monaco Grand Prix, but uh, doesn't look like Monaco where you're sitting right now. Yeah, that was, that was my plan originally. But then, uh, then I ended up... Um having um an injury after uh, uae or doing uae actually i got epidemia i think it's called so like one testicle that got big really big and they kind of kicked me out for for five weeks five weeks off the bike so now i'm trying to get back and and the program uh, has changed from originally being zero to now being tour de france so i am sitting in andorra on top of uh, on top of the mountain in the clouds haven't seen the sun up here for five days so how's the training going then is it long miles you're doing now or you already passed that stadium and you like back into intervals to like fine-tune your shape no I'm, I'm like first of all now the first few days and altitude was like getting used to it so taking a bit more easy and now i have to start to get some some intervals in the next the next few days and uh, and then I'm off to I think we changed my program today that I will go to Mercant Tour and then to Tour de Suisse um, to get a bit of race speed before the before the tour. You you just mentioned race speed. Um, we kind of know what that means, but explain to our listeners what that really means and is it a real thing? Because nowadays, you you guys have such so much technology in your back pocket um is it really the race speed or is it more just like the mental um focus that you have to have when you're racing but i, th I think it can help to have some some yeah uh, race speed like the speed that you do in the races uh get that in the legs because it's still difficult to do in in training and and also um you won't get all the accelerations out of the corners in training as you do in a race and, and, and all this constant change of, of rhythm. And I think that's what racing a little bit can give you and, and, and where if you're only training, you might miss it um, before a big goal. So uh, to get a, a race in before a big goal, that's, that's always, uh, I think for, for most guys, it's like priority to, to get something in. Um, to get these accelerations in and, and uh, yeah, and also just the speed. You can do motor pacing, but motor pacing is not, uh, I mean, it's not, you're not, you're not going through uh, small French villages on your, with your motorbike uh, in front of you at uh, 50 or 60 K per hour and, and taking all the turns full gas. So that now you had um, a longer break of racing. Are you more excited or more nervous to go back in the peloton? You have a good feeling you know where you are in terms of your shape or you go, I don't know how it will be. I went to uh, to Tour of Hungary. So I did Tour of Hungary before coming here. 
and I have to say I was like feeling okay but I was still like okay the rest of the bunch have been racing now I did like four days of racing in 23 and then I had like five weeks off the bike trained for maybe five weeks and then I went racing so I was a bit curious to see how it would go but all in all it did um, I was quite happy with with my with my condition and and where I was at that at that moment and um, still something to build on not not to say that there's nothing to build on but uh, it was it was not bad yeah, I would say. I mean, you finished 11th overall in the Tour of Hungary um, that just finished a couple of weeks ago. So, But that time off the bike, right? Like, okay, I don't know the... I don't want to know the details of, of your, your injury, <laughs> but it's always hard when you're feeling like you want to race. Like, you just train the whole winter. You go to the first race, the UAE Tour. Um, this happens, and then you have to take essentially a second off season how did you uh, deal with that were you like one of those just nervous nancy's walking around the house opening and closing the fridge door every five minutes or did you kind of take it in and say listen i'm going to spend this time with my family and just relax because there's nothing i can do i think to start with i was like uh i was walking around at home i was like okay what i'm gonna what i'm gonna do what i'm gonna do because i was not allowed to do any sport so doctor said I had three weeks on antibiotics and with this kind of antibiotics, the doctor said, no sport, like nothing, no running, no gym, no, no nothing. Like you're not, you, you gotta do nothing now for three weeks. It's like, but that's, that's more than what I do in my off season. In my off season, I still do stuff. So first of all, I decided I don't care if I want chocolate, I'm going to eat chocolate because trying to stay skinny and lean without being able to do anything at all. Like you're not allowed to eat anything. So I'm going to go around being grumpy on top of that. I'm grumpy already. So yeah, the first few days were a bit hard. And I think my, my wife also found them a bit hard, but then slowly I got into it. And then it was actually, like, nah, it's not so bad. Then it's hard to get back on the bike when you then say like, after five weeks, okay, now you can go again. Like, yeah sure okay yeah i'm gonna get into it but uh, it, it took a bit of time actually to like kind of to get restarted and say no no i am hungry i want to go back i i i want to go fast again and also the fact of building up all the winter to then do four days of racing and then start from scratch again that was like oh this is uh this is uh, this is not easy, but uh, yeah, that that's that's how it is, and uh, at least it's going okay. And and I I keep my fingers crossed and hope that uh, that this long break will make will make uh, will make something good, and and that uh, some good good results will come out of it uh, from maybe being more fresh and and actually having such a long break without doing anything. I am actually a hundred percent convinced it will be like that. I have seen a few other riders having the same problem and they had a really good second part of the season because just like you said, they're much fresher. But let's yeah. go a little bit further back into your life. For the, for our um, listeners, they don't know, Jakob started off as a mountain biker. So how come you first of all started mountain biking and not road racing? And second, why and when did you swap after being world champion, right? Mountain biking, why did you swap and when? How did that come along? 
So I started um, as a as a kid. What 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 I was I must have been like twelve or something. I was always riding my bike like to school and and whatever. But I started uh, doing mountain bike with with my older brother and uh, a friend of him. The the Nordic no the European Championship in mountain bike had been in in our hometown. So a friend of us, his dad was out there helping to organize and stuff. And this kind of kickstarted everything. That then we started riding the bike and yeah, and and, and like that I started mountain biking. Um and then um when I was a kid, Bjarne Reese was the big hero in uh, in Denmark and cycling is is huge in Denmark and, and Tour de France is um, yeah uh, super popular and was already back then. So of course, every summer when the rain was pouring down outside and it was 15 degrees, then you're watching Tour de France on the television. So from there, I always had this, this dream of trying to, to, to race on the road. Um, so as you said, uh, fast forward 2007, I, turned world, I became world champion under 23. Mountain bike, 2008, I then did... Olympics, Beijing, mountain bike. And then I got the offer from um, from um, Saxo Bank, or what was CSC back then, CSC Saxo Bank, I think it was, uh, from Kim Anderson that called me and asked if I wanted to to come on the on the road and, and um, yeah, and become a pro on the road. Um, 2008, I had done like two of Denmark with a Conti team in Denmark and actually beated uh, you guys um, and I think there was also there was actually we agreed already before that I would uh, that I would come to the to the road the following year but it was uh, it was sweet to beat you guys there in uh, in Denmark to my defense I wasn't there that year to my defense <laughs> I think I wasn't there but yes it was a great win I have to agree you well done that uh, that year Jakob yeah uh, I mean, not only that, but then you meet you beat the legend Nino Scherter to win the the under twenty three World Championships that year, and that guy uh, can also ride a mountain bike as we've seen over the last couple of decades. You know, so that must have been fun. Um, but I read also yeah. that you did Cape Epic. How old were you when you did Cape Epic? Because I had a couple friends that have recently done it, and it seems like an amazing challenge, but so difficult. But I mean, you must have been super young when you, when you won that, right? Yeah. So I was actually talking with. We have a mechanic here from um, from South Africa, like an older one. And uh, as we were driving down, because we cannot ride the bikes down, it's raining too much and it's too cold here. Uh, today we were talking about it, and I think that I might have done it two thousand seven and two thousand eight done the Cape Epic and in 2008 I think uh, I think it was 2008 I won it together with my partner back then uh, Roel Paulissen but yeah that is a that is a tough one but I would like to go back when I finish my road career and for our listeners they, they don't know too much about it it's a multi-day mountain bike race with two up teams and isn't it you, uh, the two riders, are not allowed to be separated for more than 50 meters or 100 meters or otherwise you you out? Yeah, I think it's 100 meters. Then 
And there's like checkpoints along the way. So if you at the checkpoints are too far apart, but of course you don't know when the checkpoints are coming. But in, in I think it it comes from that like a kind of safety point of view that you are two together in the in the in the wildness in uh, in South Africa. But I think it's from what I heard, it's become easier than what it was to begin with, because what to begin with it was stages of like. 110, 130, uh, 140 uh, kilometers on a mountain bike a day for eight days. So it was like, was like a, a challenge, Jeez. a hard race. Because the mountain bike doesn't roll like the road bike. Huh? <laughs> the mountain bike, you have to push. I, I learned that recently. I did my first mountain bike stage race. And let's just say, I don't think I'll do another one because I can go uphill <laughs> just fine. But the way that you guys and gals go downhill, eh, I just, uh, yeah, not, not able to make those decisions or take those risks anymore. But I mean, yeah, you were kind of like on top of the world in the mountain biking. And then you come to CSC Saxo Bank, or like you said, whatever we were called back in, 2009 and you know i know this podcast we don't have the video but let's just say man to man Jakob, you're a damn handsome man but the position that you have on the bicycle is absolutely gorgeous and you had it since day one like you could just see like us older riders could see the class that you had in your pedal stroke did you work like did you do anything special when, especially when you were younger, to develop that fluid pedal stroke in that good position, or was that just how it was? Yeah, I think it was just how it was. I was always like, I was always on the bike since I was uh, since I was a kid. I was always using the bike to go to school. I was always riding the bike. Um, so I think it's just naturally, of course, as you turn pro and stuff, you do bike fits and 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 that kind of stuff, but. Uh, Let's say the main position has has always been the been the same, and that's just from yeah, whatever. Uh, when you came to the team, I was I was really impressed on how mature you were, and a lot of guys, you know, they get in the wind tunnel or they get with that bike fitter, and totally change their position. And I remember we were doing one, and we instead of having you lower, it was like sky high and short, and um, you were like, kind of went through the motions. And then the next time I saw you, you had your original position back. And I was just like, Jakob, you know, we spent all that time. You're like, yeah, but that didn't work for me. So I'm going to do this. And it worked just fine after that. But I was so impressed that you like <laughs> just said, you know what? I'm going back to my old position. And I totally respected that. And you rode that bike pretty fast anyway. So um, Jakob, um, Bobby and me, we are the older generation. Pitcock and these kids are young generation. You are somewhat in between, right? So, are you more yeah, tending? I'm to one of the old one on on the. <laughs> I'm one of the old ones in the in the peloton now. Are you tending more to train the old way, like the way you feel, or you also use all the science? Do you step on the scale like ten times a day? Do you weight your food and all that, or are you caught in the middle of all of it? A little bit old school, a little bit new modern technology. How how is that for you? No, I will say I'm actually trying to 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 follow what's the the new technology and and um, yeah, and 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 try to 
to f follow the young guys. Um, and even for myself, like uh, I started like weighing my food and counting, not calories, but counting carbs, because that's all I'm interested in um, some years ago. And that made a big difference for me. I mean, the old school, it was like, the less you can eat, the better it is. And it's like, yeah, it's maybe not true in, in racing. You need some fuel. And that, that was kind of like a thing where I understood like, ah, if I even in training eat, like maybe like I do in races, I can actually train harder. If I can train harder, then I can maybe become better. Um, so learning how the, everything works together and, and, and really to count and, and, uh, and calculate all this stuff. So I, I, I'm on the beat and I'm trying to follow the young guys. That is music to my ears because, um, nutritional protocols when we were, when Jens and I were racing, were pretty close, but like you said, it was always how skinny could you get? And I just think back to those hours upon hours of unfueled wasted training minutes, you know, that fourth hour of a six hour ride, you decide to stop eating because you're like, oh, I'm going to be home in a little bit. I'm going to, you know, lose some weight right now, burn some fat. Um, but what you wind up doing is basically wasting that last two hours of the workout and then jeopardizing your recovery when you get home because you just want to be skinny. So, um, and rape the fridge, raid the fridge, and you're not going to make the best <laughs> nutritional decisions when you're, um, when you're hypoglycemic or low in glycogen, that's for sure, or low in glucose. Um, but yeah, so you've been a professional for a while. You were always very professional as a professional. Are you comparing numbers back to, I don't know, five years ago, 10 years ago, or is it just a totally different ball game and you just have to look through the main windscreen of the car and not really focus on, on, um, you know, the numbers and the speeds that you were going up climbs back then, because from my couch and the TV and watching Jens on the motorbike recently, these, it's just seems like the kids, these young kids are going so much faster than we, we ever did. Yeah. I think also that we are going faster. Um, and I kind of, of course, sometimes I look, but I look kind of like training. If I look back, then I'm, ah, oh, what did I do there when I was going good? But in general, I'm like, I'm not looking back. I'm trying to become better and to become better. I don't have to repeat what I did. I have to do something, something better or something different. Um, because yeah, if I, I, I don't know, but I could imagine that if I stuck with my training program, let's say from 2012 then I would not be there. I would not be with the base guys. I would not be able to follow because the speed is higher and the level is higher. And there's more guys with a really high level. Like competition is really close also. Of course you have the, 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 the Supermans like, uh, like uh, Pogacar, like uh, Fanad, like uh, Van der Poel, uh, whatever they're called. Um, but yeah, people, they always say, yeah, but these young guys, they're so fit. Yeah, but the young guys, they also existed when I was young. There was also other young guys that were beating the old guys. Like our teammate, Andy Schleck, he was young and he was beating everybody's ass. Um, so I don't think it's, in that sense, it's not so much different. But, uh, but yeah, the, the level is high. 
Uh, we can see that at a lot of races where like the top three or the top ten are so much closer than when we were racing. And I don't think that this um, development is um, is going to change anytime soon, I suppose. Um, in, in order to keep up, yeah, like you said, you know, you follow their steps. But do you have a secret plan of actually becoming ahead of them? Is there anything you go, you know what, I'm going to do this and only I know about it and then I'm going to beat the others. Do you have a secret plan for that? No, not really. Like I have to say, before UAE, I was thinking like, okay, I'm not going to do altitude this year. I'm going to try with heat training and sitting at home on the home trainer in a in a sweatsuit that I bought on Amazon, sweating like a, like a pig. But of course, I got my problem once I came to UAE, so I didn't really see if I was going or not. But to be honest, I don't think that was the thing. I don't think that would have made me that little bit better than the rest. Um, I would like to know if you have some tips or you have something in mind, then, uh, then I'm open. I'm always open to try new things, but uh, yeah, my years are also running out. I can't believe you say that because yeah, looking at you now, like, you know, you got a family, you're, you just turned 38, I believe. You just mentioned that you're one of the older guys yeah. in the Peloton. And my memories of you were like, you were the youngest guy in the Peloton. And, you know, you, you mentioned it, you were really close with the Schleck brothers. And, you know, when Saxo Bank ended, um, you all went to Leopard Trek and, you know, it seemed like everything was, you know, kind of gelling there. But then I've always wanted to ask you this question because I haven't spoken to you since. Why switch from riding with your buddies and uh, a, a group of staff that you knew for three or four or five years and making that switch to Astana? Um, obviously, you, you made it work because you were there for, for eight years. But I was always curious, what was that um, deciding factor for you to kind of go against the grain and do something on a team that I don't think you knew many of the other riders as well as you did at um, Saxo Bank and Leopard? No, I think, um, wow, there was, of course, a, a few things that, that made me change. There was some financial things in in uh, <laughs> in that Leopard and, and, and Radio Shack team back uh, back there. There were some, some problems with some payments that didn't fall on time and, and here and there. And then I had my controversies with uh, with Johan Brunel, and um, yeah, that was kind of like, okay, I'm I'm out of here. Um, Andy was um, Andy was underperforming a little bit on 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 that at at that moment, and and that also like maybe our friendship at that moment was not was not the best, but um, we uh, we are back friends and 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 talk the day to day, but. Um, back then I was like, okay, I, I'm, I'm going to try something else. But mainly it was like, uh, my, my little controversy with, with Johan Brunel that kind of was like, okay, you know what? I'm leaving this. Um, so you still had some really good years with Astana, right? Ever regretted the decision or thought maybe it could have gone to another team or, I mean, you in this team for a long time, will we see you riding? A few more years with your new team, Israel Premier Tech. Um, I actually never kind of regret my decisions during my career. 
But of course, sometimes when you think back, you're like, yeah, maybe I should have gone there instead. What could it have? What could I have done if I would have uh, said yes to what was Sky back then instead of uh, going with the going with to Leopard and 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 becoming, let's say, a helper of the of the Slack brothers. Um, but I'm I'm happy and I'm proud of my career and uh, I had some really good years in in Astana. Um, I had my biggest uh, biggest successes in in Astana and um, it was it was uh, a nice team to to be part of also and and now I'm in in Israel I moved on from there and um, have one more year contract and then we see if it's it's time to to end or if I will take one more year. When did you finish, Jens? Um, 41? No, actually, um, the day after my 43rd birthday. Um, so I was 42 for the entire year, and then the hour record I did um, 18 of September, the day after my 43rd birthday. So it's it's a, it's a long one. <laughs> I am not going to beat you. <laughs> oh, who knows? Never say never, my friend. <laughs> yeah, you already beat no, me. I, I tapped so. out at 36 and very happily retired since then. But, um, you know, you mentioned, you know, Frank, Andy, Fabian, Stuart, Yenzi was your teammate. But, you know, when you went to Astana, there was two Italian riders that I was never really knew because they were so much younger than me. But you seemed to be able to help get the best out of them. You know, uh, Nibali being number one and Fabio Aru being the second one. Um, can you tell us, I know this is a podcast about you, but I'm, I'm just curious, how were, how was your relationship with them when you were on the teams together? Well, I think they were, they were teammates of me and I did my job and I did my best for, for, for helping the team and, and to do my job. It's not that I'm not on a Christmas, Christmas cards with, with, uh, with either of them. Um, but I, I totally respect them and and, uh, and yeah, uh, they were they were not bad teammates, uh, even if you don't know them. Like I think my advantage was that I knew a little bit of Italian from from having lived in lived, lived in Italy before um, I came to um, like the years I was with Saxobanga was living in Italy, um, and that helped me when I when I signed with Astana because there was. Everything was Italian, um, and even Nibali tried to speak English with him. It was basically impossible. We'll be back after this short break. Now back to our chat with Jakob. Well, let's um, since we already touched the subject of age, um, and I think nothing makes you realize you age more than your own children. I believe you have two children now, Jakob, right? Tell us a little about uh, about them. How old are they? Are they showing any interest in sports? Or are they just uh, wild? Or are they just cute? Or tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> yeah, so I have two uh, <coughs> two girls. One of, yeah, she's turning six in a month. And then one of nine months. Um, so, uh, yeah, the oldest one, she is... Uh, She's very competitive. I think she has it more from her mom than she has it from me. Uh, 
doesn't want to lose, uh, gives everything every time. It's not that I like to lose, but I think, I think when you do competition as a job, when you are home, it's it's not so important. But uh, cycling is not what they're really into. And to be honest, I would also not. I would rather see them choose another sport if they want would would want to do something. Thing is too dangerous and. But yeah, in general, it's it's. Um, I think it's too dangerous. Like training on the roads, also just just that. Play tennis, play golf, uh, do something else instead. I think that 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 would be better for them. I uh, I have to agree with you there. I also miraculously have two girls, uh, very much separated by that same um, age difference. Jens has four girls so i don't know what it is with cyclists having girls but you know it is what it is but Jakob, let's get back to your achievements in your career you know you've won the dauphine twice you've won liege bastogne liege you've won lombardia and you also got second in the olympic road race in in rio what are your best memories of those victories or maybe your best victory excluding those, uh, or your best memories excluding those amazing results? That is a good question. Like, I mean, for sure something like Rio uh, Olympics is something completely special because didn't really expect it, didn't really like, I remember back then I was, I was like, uh, saying to my wife, there was something with the, with some virus and some mosquitoes or whatever. And we were trying to get pregnant with our first daughter. She's like, yeah, I don't know if I should go and maybe not. And I'm not so good. And the tour didn't go so good. So I didn't expect that much. And then to suddenly end up with a, with a, with a medal at the Olympics. And we think that Tour de France and, and the races that we do all year round, that they're important, but for the general public, then Olympics is just something so much bigger. Like you, I can tell uh, anybody on the streets, like, yeah, I won uh, Liege, Bestand, Liege, and Lombardy, and they would just look at me like, yeah, whatever. Ah, I have a silver medal from the Olympics. It's like, oh, then you must be good. Um, so for sure, Olympics is 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 one of the one of the most special ones, and also one of Maybe the one that kind of kickstarted it for me to say, no, I can actually win. I can actually be with the best. And I should not just be a helper for Fabio Aru or, or, or Vincenzo Nibali or, or Slack Brothers. I should actually try for myself also. Um, and that was kind of like the kickstart for for getting these other results and saying, no, no, I, when, I, when I want, when I'm good, I'm good enough to also be the one that is getting help uh, from the other riders and and uh, and then I can achieve uh, some big results. Then Dauphiné is also, first Dauphiné of course is also special, but I think Rio is really the one that kind of kick-started everything. I must say oh. I loved uh, your impressive win in Liege-Bastogne-Liege, that was really good. Like you rode clever, smart, that was a really good one. Uh, something well, you didn't win, but um, that rainy stage in Paris Roubaix in a tour. I think the year when Nibali won, right? You didn't yeah, play yeah. a super important role in the team tactics for the team, basically laying the foundation of him to win. In my eyes, that was a really impressive uh, job you did there. 
Was that back then, that stage, was it all part of the plan or you were also like having an eye on the stage when maybe? Or was it just all a long time plan to get uh, Vincenzo safely over the cobbles? No, that was kind of the plan. I mean, even on the, I think it's the last couple sector where last boom, he didn't kind of rides away from us. I have to sit up a little bit and wait for Nibali to get him with to the line. Uh, but of course, when you then look back and people, they come to you because I was all in for that. We get Nibali to the line as quick as possible and gain as much time as uh, as possible. And then afterwards, people they come and say, yeah, but why did he not break? You could have taken yellow then. He should have given you the yellow jersey for all you did for him. It's like, uh, yeah, yeah, he could have done that. But at the moment, we were just all in for we need to we were there to win the tour. That was the goal, was not to, yeah, whatever. And he, he started out in, basically started out in yellow and kept it all the way, so quite impressive. So so you've hit on it a couple of times and we watching you and knowing you, you are a very loyal um, teammate and you often did sacrifice your, your own chances for your team leader. But you said something there that I just need to kind of try to dig in a little bit more about that mentality switch from going to being that default helper to all of a sudden being that default leader in your own head. What, what changed? It had to have been something more off the bike or support from somebody that kind of got you thinking like that rather than, you know, somebody in the Peloton, but I don't know, maybe I'm digging too far here, but like, what was it? that happened where you just kind of switched from that domestique role to, Hey, I, I want to be the rider that that's worked for by the team. But it is, it's, I think it's not that I say, I want to be the one that's worked for from the team, but of course it's, it was kind of like at that Olympics, we were with, we had three, we were three guys, three guys for Denmark. And I mean, three guys that was like, okay, Jakob, you are the leader. You are our best chance to get a result. And these two guys, they gave everything. They kept me like protected as long as they could and helped me as much as they could. It was kind of like, okay, they, they actually, they helped me and I achieved something big. Um, and also, of course, the years that I was riding with Nibali, there was also some frustrating moments. I remember like in a, in a Dauphiné where I had to, to work for him and I was waiting for him on the last climb and, and trying to pull him up and he got dropped and he got pissed at me because I was riding too fast. And and uh, Vino called me afterwards and said, why didn't you just ride? I was like, yeah, fuck, I was working for him. You told me to work for him. I could have done like a top three or whatever uh, if, if I didn't have to wait for him. But there was like these moments that often when I was with, in Astana and the years with Nibali was always like, you're second captain, mm. you're second captain. But I never really got the chance. Um, and then here at this Olympics, kind of, I, I got the chance. I was the only captain in a small Danish team and and uh, and managed to, to get a, a big result out of it. Um, so I think, I think basically it, it was, it, that was it. Then maybe BS back in the days from our survival camps that said to me, you have leader instinct in you. You can be a leader. 
But I mean, being a leader doesn't mean that you are the captain. Ooh, I like that. Being the leader does not make you the captain. But yeah, that I'm so stoked that you said that because um, there are two out of the three of us on this podcast actually have a silver medal. So if somebody asked me that question, <laughs> I would have said the exact same thing. And I love the part about describing, you know, a race that you won and not only, um, <clears throat> you know, something that they really can hold on to, which is the Olympics, which they understand. Um, actually, there's another Olympics just around the corner. Are we going to see you there or is it too far in the future and you don't even think that far? Actually, originally, I kind of had in my mind, I want to go to the Paris Olympics and to let that be my last race before I retire. 39 years old. So then I would have done Beijing Olympics, Rio Olympics, uh, London Olympics, uh, was it Tokyo? So it would be my fifth Olympics. I was like, okay, job done. But uh, with the with the Danish with the young Danish guys riding so fast, I don't know if they need me anymore. <laughs> so maybe I'm not even going. And then I also start thinking, ah, I could also take one year more. Maybe I do one year more. But I would I would love to. But I think um, we even had a call with a national coach, uh, all the riders, like a few days ago, and and the parkour is not even out yet. So nobody knows what what to expect. Um, Actually, can I quickly yeah. jump in here? Isn't the national coach your old teammate, Anders Lund? Yeah, they yeah, just yeah, blackmail him. I'm sure you know something about him. He doesn't want to go public. <laughs> so, hey, Anders, <laughs> I go to the Olympics or everybody will know this or this or this about you. How about that plan? Yeah, Jensi told me a story once. Maybe I remember something. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that would not be bad. That would not be bad. I could use that one. Um, yeah, but he's super good. He's, he's a really good national coach. He's so motivating. So motivating. He's... Um, no, he's he's really good. He's doing a good job. Yeah, that that's a, a name from the past. Uh, <laughs> Anders Lund, we got to get him on the old podcast too. I remember one thing about him. Uh, he was very young when I was racing, but man, that kid, if you wanted to get through the peloton, if you were that leader and you, you were on his wheel, he knew how to move up. Everybody knows how to move up the side of the peloton, right? Like they just gun it and you just stay on the wheel. But he would just have this way of navigating the middle of the bunch that eventually you would very, very quickly, you'd get up there. So great to hear that he's in that position and that he's doing a good job. That's, uh, that's, that's awesome. But like, yeah, you guys were, you guys were all, we had some, a lot of young Danish talent on the team, but now with everywhere you look like Denmark is winning races, you know, you got Jonas, you got Mads, you got, uh, you know, so many other guys, you, you have to feel a little bit proud of that, right? Cause I mean, you showed a lot of the guys that, Hey, this is possible over the years. And now you're just, yeah, winning, winning the biggest races in the world, all with Danish riders. Yeah. I don't know if I can take credit for much of it, but, uh, but of course they might have watched me when they were really small. And uh, and gotten motivated by uh, by that, but they're doing they're doing really, really fantastic. And I think 
what was it Anna said like we are at the moment we are third on the world ranking as a as a nation so uh, that says something about uh, the amount of results and points that um, that we are scoring or mainly they are scoring at the moment because the last few years have been scoring a little less hopefully it's coming back one one more question because listening to you and knowing your age knowing where you are in life um it sounds like you're not tired of racing because you're still clearly enjoying it. You're up at an altitude camp in Andorra. You haven't seen the sun for five days. You have to take the car down. Um, what is it that gets you on that bike every day after all these years? I don't even feel old. It's kind of funny that it's the peloton that makes me feel old. When I look around, it's like, oh, I don't know anybody. Don't How do you think we feel? <laughs> Well, you sit and watch on television. You can you can look the numbers and you can see. Ah, oh, what is his name? I I have to ride over and it's like look at the helmet. Is there a sticker? No. Why does he not have a sticker on his helmet? What about the bike? What does it say? It's like no, no clue. Don't know who he is. Um, no, I, I I still enjoy it and I still think that I can become better and I still like. Uh, I still have the drive to go and push myself in, 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 in training. Actually, now when I had my my little um, break now and had to get back in there, I was like, maybe you lost it. Maybe you don't have it anymore. And then after a few days, like training, I was like finding myself pushing in training. I was like, no, no, still want to go fast. Still want to try to push and, and, and to become better and and to be good, to be competitive nice um so yeah that's also why if you ask me like two years ago or one and a half year ago say three years then i'm out of here now i'm like yeah if la next year is really my last year maybe not maybe i'll do one more but of course at one point maybe also the recovery and everything is going to be like slow slow down and and it's gonna be like, okay i don't have it anymore so now that you had um, a good start for four days, then a fast break, getting back into it, what are your goals? What do you think you could achieve? You want to achieve for the well, whatever next part of the of this season? My um, stage in the Tour de France. That is really like try to win a stage in the Tour. Maybe, maybe, maybe like mountain jersey could also be an objective, but. You know, that's something you have to see once you're two weeks in, if it makes sense or not, if there's any possibilities. Um, but really a stage, I still haven't got a, a stage within the Tour de France. So um, that's like an objective. I I don't think I, I don't want to try for, for GC. I just want to try for, for a stage. And uh, yeah, and then there's the last part of the, the season where hopefully I will hopefully it will be good and um I think I have two of Luxembourg on my program which I won already once but it's always nice to to be back and, and you know that can be a small goal before the Italian the last Italian races which are always always nice to nice to do and nice way to finish off the season and especially nice if you're going good otherwise they're just hard <laughs> So, um, no, but first of all, it's like um, stage in the tour. 
Well, I hope that you get the best hotel possible in Luxembourg because, you know, Andy Schleck being the guy that runs the race now um, and our history with him. Talk about blackmail. Like, if you don't get a good hotel, uh, we, we can come up with some stories. Blackmail him also. <laughs> yeah, I think I also have some stories. I don't know. But something popped up on social media with Richie Port recently. And we were like, what is that? And... Again, I don't know why it's Andy that said this, but Andy said that you have a clothing company or that you were associated with this clothing company. Mad Mad One? Is that yeah. do you have something to do with that? Yeah, I do. Let, let's hear it. Let's let's making making this stuff together with my wife. Now, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's our brand, so we started probably must be more than two years ago. I was part of another uh, cycling clothing brand for uh, like one and a half year. That didn't work out. And then, um, then I was like, yeah, but I, I have ideas. I, I spent so many hours on the bike. I, I know what's good, what's bad, what, what I would like uh, in cycling clothes. And I couldn't, with, with that other thing, I couldn't, couldn't make it. And then like okay, let let let's make our own. We're gonna make our own, and then uh, slowly we found like uh, somebody to produce from us. We got uh, we found the name, so it's actually Richie Porter came up with it. It comes from him. Like let's go, let's do the mad one. So the mad one is called the Lamadon, which you probably also know. Called Lamadon is the most used climb at least for the professionals who live around Nice and, and the ones who live in Monaco. Um, and it's, it's, it's a good climb. It's like a 13 kilometer climb with an average of, I think 7.6 or something like that. So it's a, it's a decent climb. Um, and I was like, okay, mad one it is. So, um, that's where Richie, he comes in, in the picture also, but we launched now in, um, in uh, end of March, so we only sell online. So mad minus one dot cc, that is the the website. And we are trying to. It's the first collection. Um, we want to do both for men and women, since there's so many women that start cycling. I say, like, women they also need to have some some good clothes. Um, and we are trying to produce like highest possible standards that we can do and uh, and it's also for me to have something when i'm not a rider anymore to fall into if i should not end up as a sports director which i don't think i will um but it's it's super interesting with your clothesline you produce you produce for the average day cyclist for high performance for everyone commuting to work or it's a first try selection out there so for now what is out there now is like the summer collection and we produce i would say for the ambitious cyclist one it's not that you have to be fit fit like a professional but um you have to care about uh, the clothing and you have to care about uh, the quality of the of the stuff otherwise you 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 don't need to buy then you buy something else um 
but yeah the fit is like we we do the fitting ourselves it's not it's not white label clothing it's us saying nah i want to i want it to be one centimeter higher and the arm should be two centimeters smaller or yeah it's something that's not working so i'm testing the clothes and i'm like secretly training uh, testing testing clothes and then i was like nah there's something wrong here we have to adjust and then back to the factory another prototype and um, so it's fit people but it's quite comfortable the clothing like it has to be comfortable also so it will also fit a, a variety of of shapes i would say that that is awesome that you're doing that with your wife as well like you know living My together wife hate me for it what's that <laughs> My wife, she doesn't like me for it. She's like, yeah, I didn't want to do this. I don't want to do this. No, she's, it, it, let, let me, it's more than I would ever have, have imagined. It was like making second clothes. Like I know everything. But it's not the making the second clothes that's the problem. It's the business part of it. Selling VAT online, you need a payment processor, you need here, you need there, you need then we live in Monaco, then you cannot get a payment processor because nobody works with Monaco and VAT in Europe and you need a special number when you need to send close to Richie Port in in, uh, in Tassie because it's uh, Australia and there's many things to to bunk your head on when you want to do stuff like this. But, well, um, let me add one more thing to add to that list that's annoying. That's the discount code that you you have my email address. <laughs> it hasn't it hasn't changed. So, you know, all your friends that ask for discount codes like myself right now, um, <laughs> add that to your list. But uh, make sure that I will send you I will send you a kit. Yeah, there we go. Yenzi needs one, too. He's getting all fit. You know, after being on that motorcycle, he needs to get back on the bike again. Uh, if I can get him out of the shut up legs or what it is, then uh, <laughs> then I will give him a kiss. Well, maybe if we. I got last. I got like last back into one. Oh, it's awesome! Like, oh, it's nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Our old teammate last back. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Jakob, it was great catching up with you. Um, I know that you mentioned we need to get off before all the riders come up and start bogarting all the internet again, but I think we made it through. It was so great yeah, to have you on. Like Thank you so much for coming on to Bobby and Jens today. You're welcome. Good to see you guys. Well, that's all our time for this week. Huge thanks to Jakob for being our guest. Thanks for listening. Please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. The show was a Value News production in association with Shock Giraffe. The producer was Mark Payne. And this episode was edited by Tim Mosa. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bobby and Jens and share your cycling stories with us. Who was the athlete you competed against when you were younger who went on to become a star? Let us know by messaging us on Twitter and Instagram at Bobby and Jens. Mm-hmm.